Stump the chump, right? Here we go. <laughs> it's been, it's been yeah. a number of years. Yeah. yeah, it's been a while. It's been a while. And uh, uh, most of the men that are here that are in this class, they'll, they'll, they'll testify. Uh, take the challenges that he has for you tonight. For Brother Scott. Brother Andy. And for uh, all those that are here, I appreciate you guys coming out. Uh, if you heard about it, on who was going to be here on Sunday? If not, uh, I hope you bear with me, but uh, I hope everybody's ready to take a, a quick trip through history. Uh, it's no secret I, I, I enjoy history, and, and as I get in and I read through the Bible and stuff, it's, it's good to be able to put it all together and, and see where it fits in there. So to help you follow along with the verses tonight, if you go ahead and put uh, a marker in the first chapter of Ezekiel, and then after you've got a marker in Ezekiel, go ahead and turn back to 2 Chronicles chapter 35, and uh, that's where we'll get started on things. But uh, one thing that can trip us up as we try reading our Bibles and studying it, studying it is not realizing that the layout of the various books is not always in a chronological fashion. It's not ordered by date. And sometimes things taking place together are actually separated by a number of uh, pages, and, and you'll see that in, in these two sections tonight. Uh, there's a pretty good separation there. But that's the case uh, for those, and uh, the passages we're going to look at in Second Chronicles are part of the division we call the history uh, section in the Bible, and uh, those follow along pretty much chrono chronologically as you go through. And uh, there's a parallel passage for uh, the, what's going on in Second Chronicles and Second Kings. We're not going to go into those tonight. But uh, it gives more details on the, the life of Josiah, who was king at the time that this is going on. And that's in uh, 2 Kings chapter 22 to 24. Uh, the other one that we mentioned, Ezekiel, is one of the prophets. And uh, so it's organized with the prophetical books. And uh, it's taking place at the same time that we see 2 Chronicles going on. And along with that, the book of Daniel is taking place at that same time. And there's even parts of... Uh, Jeremiah's book that are going on in this same time uh, simultaneously. So God's given us a number of witnesses to bring all these different pieces together and help us to better understand what's going on. And that's the way he does it in the New Testament too. When we get into the Gospels, we have four of them, and that's God's way of giving us four different witnesses with their own little viewpoint to it to bring those pieces together and help it uh, work for us. And uh, get that full picture of what's going on. That said, as I was going through and studying these passages and looking at the mindset of the people that uh, are involved in this, there was a soundbite that kept running through my head over and over again. It's one you'll probably recognize. If we can get it to play. Nope, okay. If it's one you recognize, it, it'll play right in your head when I say it, but picture the movie The Princess Bride, and you got the guy sitting there going, inconceivable, and it's going through his head. Well, that's what's going through my head as this goes on. And if you're familiar with the movie, you also know there was another character that's looking at him and saying, I don't think that word means what you think it means because of the way he was using it. So... To avoid any kind of confusion, let's look at terms. The Oxford English Dictionary defines inconceivable as not capable of being imagined or grasped mentally, 
Noah Webster put it this way, impossible to comprehend. And as we look at these passages, the word inconceivable appears to be the response to Ezekiel as he's delivering God's message to the people of Israel. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin this evening, I pray that you would hide me up behind the cross. Give me your words and help me to deliver them faithfully, Lord, that they might speak to those that are here tonight. We appreciate everybody that's come out and to take the time to glorify you. And Lord, I pray that this message would take take hold in our hearts and remind us of where our position in history is and where our position in life is and the things you've called us to do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so uh, before I get to the main point, uh, like I said, I'm a history buff and stuff, so I'm going to paint a picture of what's going on in this particular point in history for context. Prior to our verses, uh, by about 100 years, in the year 722 B.C., we see the Assyrian Empire invade the northern Jewish kingdom, the, the kingdom of Israel, and they take them in that nation into captivity, and they basically disappear from uh, the scene through the Bible for the most part. We'll, we'll start hearing about them here and there later on, but they're basically out of the picture at that point. Uh, but while that goes on, God spares the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, because while all the kings of Israel are described as having done evil continuously in their lives, God goes through and he notes a number of the kings of Judah and points out that they've got God on their heart and they turn the nation to, uh, back to God on occasion. And uh, so they've been spared this exile under the Assyrians. And history records that in the year 612 BC, the Assyrian Empire, those that took Israel into captivity, their capital city at Nineveh is overrun by an emerging superpower made up of the Medes and the Persians allied with uh, this little known place called Babylon. And it's soon to be known as the Babylonian Empire. In that battle, Assyria retreated from Haran, uh, or excuse me, uh, retreated from their capital city of Nineveh and went to the uh, city of Haran and set up a new capital. Haran is in Turkey and Babylon again invaded in the year 609 B.C. So just a short while, they're still after them. And at that point, the remaining forces of the Assyrian army moved to Karchemish, which is located on the Euphrates, Euphrates River on the border between Syria and Turkey. Or, uh, yeah, between Syria and Turkey. Uh, Karchemish is where uh, the king, of, king Necho of Egypt was headed to aid the remaining Assyrian forces to defend their territory against this new guy, Nebuchadnezzar, and the Babylonian army in the uh, verses we get into it. So it'll be 2 Chronicles chapter 35, and we'll jump in at verse 20. So verse 20 says, uh, After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple... Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Karchemish by Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him. But he sent ambassadors to him, saying, What have I to do with thee, thou king of Judah? I come not against thee this day, but against the house wherewith I have war. For God commanded me to make haste, forbear thee from meddling with God who is with me, that he destroy thee not. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but he disguised himself that he might fight with him, and hearkened not unto the words of Necho from the mouth of God, and came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. 
and the archers shot at King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Have me away, for I am sore wounded. His servants therefore took him out of that chariot and put him into the second chariot that he had, and they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died and was buried in one of the sepulchres of his fathers, and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. So this battle of Megiddo, which uh, results in Josiah's death, it delayed the Egyptian army that was on the way to Carchemish, uh, and it, it, it delayed them enough that the remaining Assyrian forces were totally crushed by the Babylonian uh, coalition, and then that ended the Assyrian Empire, as it were. And it cemented the power of the Babylonians for years to come. And after King Josiah's death, we saw that the people of Judah crowned Josiah's younger son, Jehoahaz, to be king. But after just three months on the throne, Necho, the king of Egypt, replaced him with his older brother, Eliakim, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. Uh, and that's all done while on, he's on his way back to Egypt after facing the Babylonian forces. Uh, and that's uh, recorded in uh, chapter 36 in the first four verses. And the Bible says, Then the people of the land took Jehoiahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's stead in Jerusalem. Jehoiahaz was twenty and three years old when he began to reign, and reigned three months in Jerusalem. And the king of Egypt put him down at Jerusalem and condemned the land to an, in a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And the king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother king over Judah, and Jerusalem, and turned his name to Jehoiakim, and Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him to Egypt. So after the defeat of the, of the Assyrians at Carchemish, Nebuchadnezzar's not done yet. Necho had come out to face him, so he's going after Necho, and with that, uh, on his way, as he pushes into Egypt, he goes through Syria and Judah, and... Uh, tries to take things over there. So uh, here he is going after the Egyptians, and in the year 605, three years into the reign of this new King Jehoiakim, who'd been appointed by Necho, uh, King Jehoiakim changes his allegiance. He'd originally sworn it to Egypt. That was their protectors and uh, who they'd signed up with, but uh, they can see the Babylonian forces coming in and go, ooh, uh, this isn't going to work. So he changes allegiances to Babylon, and in order, he does that in order to save himself from war with the Babylonians. But along with uh, pledging allegiance to them, they, of course, take more tribute money from him. And along with the tribute money, they take a number of captives. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us just how many, but there's a, a, a number of captives that are taken. And uh, Daniel chapter 1 gives the details of that particular period in history. If you really want to look into it, uh, uh, you can go there. But uh, some of the notable captives in this first wave of deportation included Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and Daniel. You probably know the first three more by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, and with this collection of people going into captivity, it begins the 70-year period in Israel's history known as the exile. And during those 70 years of the exile, there are two notable prophets called to witness for God. Daniel, as we mentioned here, was taken captive in this first wave, and he's a pro prophet primarily to the king of Egypt, or excuse me, the, the king of Babylon and the royal court. 
He doesn't have a whole lot to do with the general people, although they see him in the position that he's in there. And he's called to make God's power known to the Gentiles. The other prophet that's known at this time is Ezekiel, and we'll take a look at his uh, ministry. And he was taken captive eight years later during the second of three invasions by Babylon. Uh, this particular invasion results because King Jehoiakim has decided he's had enough of this tribute, and he begins to rebel against uh, Babylon, and he starts this rebellion. He dies in the middle of it. His son takes over as king, and in the year 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon come back in to uh, uh, do a second invasion, and the city of Jerusalem was again spared. So he doesn't destroy the city, but he does take King Jehoiachin, the, the new king, and 10,000 captives away to Babylon this time. Uh, those 10,000 include Ezekiel, who is a, just a young priest at 25 years old at the time, and they go off into Babylon. Five years after he's gone into Babylon, Ezekiel is called by God, and God calls him to be a prophet to the common man. So Daniel's taken it to the crown and the Gentiles. Ezekiel is called, hey, go talk to my people. And uh, so he's... Uh, a prophet to the exiles that are there in Babylon. So his ministry is focused on about 10,000 people or so that were taken captive uh, at the same time he was, or it, to put it in better perspective, a group of people about one-sixth the size of the city of Moore. So not a lot of people, but God called him to him anyway. On a broad scale, the book of Ezekiel can be broken into two main themes or phases of his ministry. In the first 32 chapters, we have his calling and the ministry of prophecy foretelling the coming destruction of the city of Jerusalem, along with uh, a portion that talks about God's judgment that's coming on some of the Gentile nations. Then in the second part of, his, uh, of, of Ezekiel, chapters 32 to 48, which occur after the city of Jerusalem has fallen, and uh, that occurs in the year 586 B.C., but uh, Ezekiel is now told to bring a message that foretells the restoration of Israel. So now he's got the people's attention. Uh, they're going to be restored, and it d also describes God's holy temple in the millennium. In the first part of his ministry where he's warning of the utter destruction of Jerusalem, the basic viewpoint of the people is inconceivable. They can't, they don't want anything to do with it. They cannot envision a fortified city like Jerusalem that sits on top of a hill with its own water supply, this just can't fall. It doesn't happen. Well, it does. Ezekiel's been called to warn about it. They don't believe him. That is, up until the day that word makes it to Babylon that Jerusalem has fallen. And uh, so when that happens with the news that the city has been utterly destroyed. The gates have been burned. The walls are torn down. All of that comes in. He starts to get the people's attention a little better. So what's going on? In Charles Dyer's uh, book, The Bible Knowledge Commentary, Old Testament Edition, he describes Ezekiel's ministry this way. During these final years, Ezekiel was ministering in Babylon, predicting the coming collapse of Jerusalem, and his message falls on deaf ears until word of the city's destruction is received in Babylon. The fall of the city prompted a change in Ezekiel's prophetic message. 
Before Jerusalem fell, Ezekiel's message focused on Judah's forthcoming destruction because of the sin of, of uh, the nation. After Jerusalem's fall, Ezekiel's message centers on Judah's future restoration. Well, that's all just history, you say. Yeah, it is history. The Bible's recorded it, and it speaks to us. If we don't learn from history, we're in trouble because we can repeat it. But uh, today, if we look around this great nation, we see changes taking place that were inconceivable. There's that sound bite in my head again, just a short time ago. As a whole, the people of this nation have turned from God and unto idols, just as Judah had turned from God in their day. It seems if we warn of God's judgment for sin, people can't imagine such a great nation as this falling in that way, but it can. History bears that out over and over again. Numerous great nations and empires have fallen time and again. Today, if we, uh, we can see historic levels of inflation, rising interest rates, and out-of-control federal spending. Do you realize that in the last two and a half years, our nation has tallied up over $5 trillion worth of COVID relief? That's five with 12 zeros after it. Okay, let's be honest, inconceivable. You can describe how many zeros there, it doesn't put the picture in our head. We just can't imagine it. Uh, telling how many zeros is worthless. So as Noah Webster said, it's impossible to comprehend, so let's break it down a bit to something more personal, something we can maybe picture. Uh, the last census and everything tells us that the estimated population of this nation in 2022 is 332,403,650 or so. That includes citizens and non-citizens, by the way the count was done. Uh, but so 332 million people or so. So if we take that 5 trillion and divide that by the number of people in there, that works out to $15,000.42 or $15,042 worth of share for each man, woman, and child, or for a family of four, a little over $60,000 is what our part is in the government spending. And oh, by the way, that's just COVID relief. That has nothing to do with all the day-to-day -day expenses of this nation. So, inconceivable. More to the point, I submit to you, we cannot spend our way out of the problems this nation faces, rather, we need the same solution that Ezekiel and the other prophets presented to the nation of Judah in their day. We need to turn from our wicked ways and, the only and unto the only possible Savior for sin, Jesus Christ. Not just individually, but as a nation. In Ezekiel's day, the judgment that came upon that nation was not simply because a handful of uh, really wicked people were doing things that were sinful. No, it was because the nation as a whole had turned from God and they started doing what was right in their own eyes. That sounds real familiar. And that sums up the state of this nation today. The nation of Judah was full of themselves back in uh, that day. In Ezekiel's day, they could not conceive of the utter destruction that God said is coming. They just ignored him. We as a nation... We can't admit that God is holy and holds us in judgment. Whether we believe it or not, 
it's still there. It doesn't change things. So to go back and look at our stuff, we mentioned King Josiah in the beginning. When he went out to confront the Egyptian army and uh, King Necho in uh, the year 609 BC, his defeat after came after a godly period in, of revival in Judah's history. Josiah had stood in the gap. He was crowned king at the age of eight. And after being crowned at the age of eight, he reigned for 31 years. And in that time frame, he pulled down groves. He had idols uh, destroyed and ground into uh, dust and uh, images burned throughout the land, not just the land of Judah, but also the land of Samaria, the former uh, kingdom of Israel. Uh, and he went through and he cleaned house within the order of the priests. He ended the sacrifice of children to Molech. He commanded the repairing of the temple. He had the law read to the people, and he kept the first national Passover in years. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23 give a lot more details of what's going on in Chronicles here. Uh, but uh, like I said, there, you can get more details by looking at the different witnesses. But uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 35 in verse 18 describes this Passover this way. It says, And there was no Passover like to that kept in Israel from the days of Samuel the prophet, neither did all the kings of Israel Keep such a Passover as Josiah kept, and the priests and the Levites and all of Judah and Israel that were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Not since the days of Samuel. That's before any of the kings. That means this Passover was beyond anything King David put on. It was beyond anything Solomon ever did. Second Chronicles chapter 7 in verse 5 tells us that when the temple was uh, dedicated by Solomon, they sacrificed <coughs> 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Solomon knew how to do some dedications. <coughs> Josiah did too. His Josiah's was even more impressive. But the problem was that by the year 608 B.C., when this Passover is celebrated, it was already too late to stop the exile and the eventual destruction of Jerusalem from happening. If you turn back uh, to chapter 35, which of course comes before 36, uh, <clears throat> chapter 35 tells us of this uh, magnificent Passover celebration. The previous chapter told us that the destruction was already a done deal. This message of destruction being a done deal came after they found the book of the law of Moses and uh, had it read to the king and when he heard the message of God that was in the book of the law it grieved Josiah greatly he realized the nation had not done what God had commanded for years he, tear, he tears his clothing or you know rends his clothing in mourning and he sends to inquire of God what this means for the nation. Second Chronicles chapter 34, uh, starting in verse 24, it says, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place, and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the curses that are written in the book which they have read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods, that they might provoke me to anger. 
with all the works of their, their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be poured out upon this place and shall not be quenched. And as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, so, sh so shall ye say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which thou hast heard. Because thine heart was tender, and thou didst humble thyself before God when thou heardest the words against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, and humbled thyself before me, and didst rend thy clothes and weep before me, I have even heard thee also, saith the Lord. Behold, I will gather thee to thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered to thy grave in peace. Neither shall thine eyes see all the evil that I will bring upon this place and upon the inhabitants of the same. So they brought the word to the king again. In his days, Josiah had clearly taken God's word to heart, and God entreated him kindly for it as a result, allowing him mercifully to go to the grave before God's judgment is executed on the nation of Judah. Even with as godly a king as Josiah was and the changes that were wrought within the nation of Judah as a result, their fate is already set in stone and um, it's been done. The people could not see it. Better yet, they refused to see the truth as Ezekiel's message goes out to them there in captivity. And because of his efforts, Ezekiel has been called the father of Judaism since it was primarily his ministry that turned the Jews' hearts back to God and away from idolatry during that time of exile. That's in the second half of his uh, period in there. But in the book of Ezekiel, we see his calling revealed in a grand vision of God on a flaming whirlwind chariot throne type thing preceded by four angelic beings. Won't go into the details, but uh, just to see that uh, image of God on that throne, if you turn to uh, Ezekiel in chapter 1, and uh, it describes it starting in verse 26, and it says, Above the firmament, firmament that was over their heads, speaking of the four beasts, was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone, and upon the likeness of the throne was a likeness as the appearance of man above upon it. And I saw as the color of amber, as the appearance of fire round about it, and the appearance of his loins even upward, and from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and, I, and it had brightness round about, as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of the rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice of one that spake. So from that throne that uh, he's described there in his vision, God calls Ezekiel to be a prophet to a rebellious people. How rebellious? Verse 3 uh, of uh, chapter 2. And he said unto me, Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me, they and their fathers, and have transgressed against me, even unto this very day. For they are an impudent children and stiff-hearted. I do send thee unto them, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God. Ezekiel is charged to deliver God's message to this impudent people, whether they listen or not. He says, doesn't matter what their response is, deliver the message. We too are commanded in this day and age to take God's gospel to every creature 
even if some of them aren't going to listen. We're not to pick and choose. Ezekiel uh, 2 in verse 5 says, And they, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there hath been a prophet among them. So God tells them, tells Ezekiel, they may not listen, but at some point, whether they listen or not, they're going to recognize that there is indeed a prophet of God that's serving among them. And we, that bears out in the second half of his uh, time after they see the destruction that he's been foretelling and it starts to sink in. They recognize Ezekiel is a prophet of God. Of God. In his charge, we also see that he is called to proclaim that message without any fear. Uh, verse 6 of chapter 2 says, And thou, son of man, be not afraid of them, neither be afraid of their words, their though briars and thorns be with thee, and thou dost dwell among scorpions, talking about the people, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. He's going to face some pushback as he takes this message of destruction out to them, just as we do as we take God's message of justice and holiness to the people around us. But God says, don't worry, I've got your back. Next, God calls Ezekiel to consume a scroll or a book that's filled with God's judgment. Uh, the Bible talks about it being written on the inside and the outside with all of these uh, forms of destruction. But uh, verse 3 of chapter 3 says, And he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat, and fill thy bowels with this roll that I may give thee. Thou didst, uh, Then didst I eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. So all his judgment, but he was sweet in his mouth. Just as God commanded Ezekiel to first eat of God's word for himself, if we're going to be effective witnesses, we need to consume God's scriptures and take them within and let them be as sweetness to us as that uh, scroll was to uh, Ezekiel. Notice with me also that Ezekiel was not called to a foreign mission field. No, he was called to proclaim God's message to his own people, his 10,000 or so fellow captives that are there in Babylon. Uh, chapter 3, verse 4, and he, said, and he said unto me, Son of man, go get thee unto the house of Israel, and speak with my words unto them. For thou art not sent to a people of strange speech and in hard language, but to the house of Israel. In fact, God revealed to Ezekiel that like Jonah, had he been called to the Gentile nation, these strangers, then like the people of Nineveh that uh, Jonah prophesied to, those people would have listened. Uh, verse 6 says, Not to many people of a strange speech and a hard language whose words thou canst not understand. Surely had I sent thee to them, they would have hearkened unto thee. With all of this going on, then God reassures Ezekiel and points out that the rejection he's going to face and the hardness that the people are going to put him through is not anything personal for him, but it's ultimately a rejection of God himself. Uh, verse 7, But the house of Israel will not hearken unto thee, for they will not hearken unto me, for all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. And then down in verse 17, God commissions him as a watchman to his own people again. 
Verse 17, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word at my mouth and, then, or, and give them warning from me. The warning is to be delivered faithfully and, it's, and in so doing, by taking that message to each and every person out there, uh, Ezekiel is going to deliver himself from blood guiltiness. Whether the recipient is wicked and uh, godless or whether it's a righteous man that's contemplating iniquity. Uh, look at verse 18. It says, When I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die, and thou sayest, uh, givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. And then again in uh, verse 20, we see the righteous man. And when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die because he has not given him, because thou hast not given him warning. He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness, which he hath done, shall not be remembered. But his blood will I require at thine hand. So Ezekiel's told, You've been commissioned, take this message out there to everybody and be faithful, because if you don't, I'll hold you guilty of it. Before his commission as a prophet, uh, Ezekiel was just a young priest, as I mentioned. He was 25 when he was taken captive. Uh, but here he is in Babylon without a temple to serve in, in a land that doesn't know God, serving a people that are in rebellion against God, not a lot of things going his way. If we examine our own situation closely, we can easily draw parallels to the life and the situation that Ezekiel is going through. While we're still within the borders of our own nation, the people as a whole around us reject God, and they're found in open rebellion against him. They cannot conceive that God has judgment waiting them or that the rejection of God can and will lead to the destruction of this nation. And like Ezekiel, we may be working some seemingly dead-end job where nobody appreciates what we do. But here's the kicker. Like Ezekiel, we've been commissioned. Our commission is to take the word of God to our own people, whether they accept or reject. It's found in Matthew chapter 28. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And we need not fear because Jesus is with us just as he was with Ezekiel. We read a bunch of history here. It's repeating itself. We need to stand in the gap the same way Ezekiel did. We have that same commission. Go out to your people and get the message out there. God told Ezekiel, you're guilty if you don't get the message out. What's that mean? We have rewards waiting for us in heaven. Those rewards can go away. Our salvation is, is secured. But we can destroy our rewards if we're not faithful in taking the message out. Heavenly Father, I pray that this message would speak to our hearts and remind us that uh, like Ezekiel, who was seemingly a nobody when you called him, we too have been called and uh, we bear a lot of parallels to what was going on then, 
a lot of parallels to what was going on in his life. And uh, the biggest parallel is that you still have a message to get out there. And we're to take it to those around us, whether they uh, listen or not. And uh, we are to do it without fearing what's going on uh, as a result of it. Because we recognize that it's not that they're rejecting us, they're rejecting you. And uh, your message still goes out. I pray, Lord, that this message would uh, be fruitful and help you to be glorified uh, in this city, in this uh, state, and around the globe through our missionary outreach. I pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.